Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. West Virginia is called almost heaven for a reason. The night sky holds the key to our, our story, the story of humans, our origins. The Green Bank Observatory is home to the world's largest fully steerable telescope, which can help guide us into the secrets and mysteries of the formation of our universe. So instead of thinking of ourselves as kind of divorced from it all, we're part of the cosmos, we're part of this story. A new director, Dr. Jim Jackson, has been tapped to take the lead. It's a fascinating job, and I can't get—I can't believe they pay me to do it. In a job that can help us understand life as we know it. In this episode of Hometown Stories, we take a look up and in. So we are literally star stuff. Recently, the Green Bank Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia, announced Dr. Jim Jackson would become its new director. We sat down virtually to talk with him about what's on the horizon and beyond. A pleasure to be here, Leanna. Thanks for having me. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about you and your research. How did you get into studying space in particular? What led you to it and what research have you been doing? Gosh, I think I've always been interested in space ever since I was a child. My mom would buy me books about astronomy. I was insatiable um, and had the curiosity about it. So um, when I went to college, I majored in astronomy and never looked back. So the particular research that I do is to study how baby stars are born. So I look at the really big stars, stars that are much bigger than the sun, and they're very luminous. They're very hot. They disrupt the um, environment that they form in pretty quickly. So it's, uh, and they form very deeply embedded in these dark clouds. So studying how they get together and how they form is, has been a bit of a challenge, but uh, with telescopes like Green Bank, we're starting to understand the details a lot better. And when you study baby stars, I mean, have you been able to you know, connect what's going on in the formation of a baby star to life here on Earth? I mean, is there something that we could glean from what's going on in the creation of a baby star um, that means something in our day to day? Absolutely. So when um, big stars like the ones I study form, they don't live very long and they burn out and they explode as a supernova. And that explosion actually um, blasts material into space. Now, the only way that we know of to make uh, heavy elements like oxygen or nitrogen or things that are in your body are inside these stars. And so the, the idea is that these elements were made in a baby star. That baby star exploded. It sprayed out these heavy elements into space and then a new star formed. And eventually one of those new stars was the sun. And those elements then were incorporated in the material around the sun and eventually incorporated into our body. So we are literally star stuff. 
That is really cool. I love starting <laughs> off Friday with that kind of idea. Um, what does it feel? How does it feel to have been named the new director? I mean, what does this mean for you and for your research? Yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled. I, I think this is uh, an opportunity of a lifetime for me. I've always wanted to run an observatory. I've been a big fan of Green Bank. I've been a big user and to, to help them through their next several years is just a dream come true. I'm, I'm delighted. So let's talk about Green Bank. What is the Green Bank Observatory and what is its primary purpose? Mm -hmm. So Green Bank has been around for a while. Um, it is the it was the nation's first radio observatory um, oh, 50 years ago or so. And it has been it is now the host of the world's largest uh, fully steerable telescope. And uh, it is a very large telescope, not the largest in the world, but the largest fully steerable one. So that means it can point anywhere on the sky. Um, there are, there's one bigger telescope in China that can only look directly overhead. There used to be a bigger telescope in um, Arecibo, Puerto Rico, but it unfortunately it recently collapsed and that telescope is no longer operable. But what we do with Green Bank is we look at radio waves coming from astronomical objects. We look in, you know, at stars and galaxies and planets and um, anything um, that emits radio waves, which are most things in space. What's maybe the coolest thing that you have ever seen or heard or gathered using that telescope? So my own particular work, I think the, the interesting thing that we're finding is just how um, um, disruptive these baby stars are when they're formed. So the stars are formed in these clouds of gas. And once a, a high mass star forms, it quickly heats up the material around it and will um, generate winds and eventually will explode. And, and but that all those interactions basically um, destroy the parental environment. And so what we're doing with our with my research at Green Bank is to look at that process and to see how quickly it happens and to see um, the, the, the degree of that disruption. Early on, it's not so bad, but later on, it gets it gets pretty intense. So in the time that uh, the Green Bank Observatory has been used, what have been some of the biggest discoveries to come mm. out of the Green Bank Observatory? Well, there are several. Um, one of the things that Green Bank does really well is it looks for uh, molecules in space. And so um, the, just like um, your radio station that has a specific frequency, molecules emit with a specific frequency. So different molecules emit at different frequencies. And by knowing what frequencies they emit at on Earth, we can go looking for them in space. And so these, these dark clouds that uh, stars are forming in are filled with uh, these complex organic compounds. And we're detecting more and more complex uh, material and, uh, and more and more complex molecules. One of those was the molecule uh, benzonitrile, which is um, it's an interesting molecule. It's a ring, a carbon ring with uh, nitrogen sticking off of it. And uh, Green Bank was the first um, telescope to discover. There it is. I pull up an image of the aromatic molecule benzonitrile. The artist's rendering is a hexagon with tentacles at each point that extend out. But one of those tentacles is twice the length of the others. So, yeah, you can see those, those black atoms are carbon and the white atoms are hydrogen and that blue atom is a nitrogen. And so these ring compounds are actually quite common um, in organic systems. They're, they're called aromatics because they're the things that you actually 
detect when you smell things. And so um, this one is uh, the first one, the first of this type ever seen uh, by the Green Bank Telescope. How big was that to be able to see this? Yeah, it's cool. Like, you know, the, it, it's easier to see simpler molecules. And when you start getting complex molecules like this, they, they get fainter and they get harder to detect. So um, this is one of the most complicated molecules now. And there are others, but it, this, this is the sort of thing that Green Bank can do and, and do very well. Let's also talk about temperature. We've got this image here. Um, yeah. I'm not sure I can even pronounce all of the words on this graph. <laughs> Walk us through what we're looking at. Jackson has sent me a series of images that show the temperature evolution of a star. Dotted and squiggled lines show the outline of the star's gases, which progress from blue to red as it gets hotter. All right, so look, this is, this is my own research, and I was talking to you about how baby stars disrupt their environment. So um, we, stars form in these dark, cold clouds, and they're opaque um, because they're filled with dust. Think of uh, smoke. You know, little particles block the light coming from behind it, and that's what makes smoke clouds dark. And the same thing happens in space. And the top row here, you see uh, three, three um, baby star-forming regions. They're clouds. The black bits are the clouds. And this is an infrared image taken with the Spitzer Space Telescope. And um, on the left, you see a cloud where nothing has happened yet, but it will eventually form stars. And in the middle, you see a star that has just formed. That, that red dot right in the middle is that baby star. And on the right, you see the star has formed and is beginning to ionize the region around it. It's beginning to blow off the left side of the cloud there. So that yellow and green stuff is the, is the uh, spray left over from the, the star destroying the cloud. Now, one of the things we're interested in is, you know, okay, so let's, let's try to understand this process. And a very important parameter is the temperature. So what I look at with green banks, I look at ammonia molecules in space. And ammonia is a really interesting probe of temperature. By comparing how bright the ammonia lines are and comparing them with each other, you can tell how cold or how warm the gas is. And so the bottom images are the same um, um, image as the top, except now what I've done is shown you the temperature that we derive from ammonia. And the blue bits are cold, and the green bits are kind of medium, and the red bits are hot. And you can see our quiescent cloud before anything happens. That's a nice cold cloud. It's, it's, it's just barely, you know, 10 degrees above absolute zero, so it's a very cold cloud. But on the, in the middle, you can see that that little red dot that's on the upper image is, is a star, and it's starting to heat the material around it. And you can see that green area is kind of a medium warm cloud by interstellar standards. And on the right, you see once that H2 region or that, that star ionizes the gas around it, it gets really hot and um, its radiation uh, starts to heat the cloud uh, tremendously, the cloud gets very hot. And so that red bit on the temperature map shows you that that piece of the cloud has gotten super hot. So what we're witnessing here is the evolution of clouds as they form stars. Now, this takes such a long time, we can't actually sit and watch it you know, happen because this takes thousands and thousands of years. But we can catch these clouds in their various stages and see what happens. And it's like taking snapshots of a random group of people and you have to take the pictures of the children and put them on the left side and the the middle-aged people in the middle and the, the elderly people on the right side. That's kind of what we're doing here to understand how 
how these uh, clouds grow and evolve. And I would hope that we don't take for granted the technology that we have now. I mean, you said that this telescope was built and installed about 50 years ago. I mean, where, how exponentially, how fast has the technology been able to grow so that we can see things like this? Right. So this particular telescope is about 20, 25 years old. Um, the, originally, there was a big telescope there, and it, it, unfortunately, it collapsed in a pretty spectacular fashion there was a it was 100 meters across the 300 foot telescope and there was a structural failure and the whole telescope fell to the ground now uh, shortly after that happened uh, the observatory said we need a replacement for this large telescope and let's do one that's even better and so they built the current green bank telescope now the the green bank telescope looks unusual compared with you know radar dishes you're used to and then it's like it's kind of off center it's asymmetric and so that's, a, that's an interesting technology that um, is developed. It's called an off-axis feed. And that way you, you're not blocking the telescope with the structure in front of it. And that makes the telescope more sensitive and um, has a lot, of, uh, a lot of good optical properties as well. Now we do take advantage of, of technology with Green Bank. Um, what we want, these are, you know, these we're detecting radio waves. So we want radio receivers to be as sensitive as they could possibly be. And we also want to look at as much sky as we possibly can. So as radio um, receiver technology improves, we can build more sensitive receivers and we can build, if you like, bigger and bigger cameras with more pixels in them so that we can map more of the sky. That's incredible. I can't, I'm just trying to think, you know, about like a hundred years ago, I, I can't even imagine it, what people back then would be thinking about what you guys can do now. Yeah, a hundred years ago, we didn't know about radio astronomy at all. It was just beginning um, in the, the, the 1920s, and it was an accident. As most things are in astronomy, the discovery of radio waves from space was a, was a pure and utter accident. There was a guy named Carl Jansky, he was working for the Bell Telephone Lab in New Jersey, and he was trying to study the transmission of radio waves and sources of noise and static that would uh, you know, um, um, hinder the reception of these signals. And what he found was, you know, lightning was pretty bad. So lightning storms were a source of noise and static, both nearby and far away. But there was another source of noise that he realized was fixed on the sky and was you know, moving along with as the sky moves around the, the uh, zodiac during the course of the year. And he realized what we're looking at is something toward the constellation Sagittarius. And it turns out what he was seeing was the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Um, brilliant, brilliant discovery, totally by accident, but it spurred this whole cottage industry of radio astronomy. That's incredible. And, and to think of all the strides that have made, been made since then and all that you guys are working towards now. Uh, we talked a little bit about the aromatic molecules that you're now able to detect. What else are you excited about? You know, what is on the horizon as far as this research goes? Yeah, so another thing that, that Green Bank does very well is the, uh, the study of pulsars. Now, pulsars are tiny rotating neutron star. So this is a high mass star that's kind of collapsed into a compact, very compact object and has a magnetic field around it. And as the star rotates, that magnetic field points at you and away from you. Now it turns out that when the magnetic, there's a radio signal that's associated with these magnetic fields as, as uh, ionized particles move around. So you, what you get is a, it's like a lighthouse. You see a blip, 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 blip. 
And um, you can study these objects um, quite precisely. You can time their, um, the, the arrival of their pulses very precisely. Now, what happens with these pulsars is um, they're extraordinarily good clocks. And uh, what Green Bank is doing with them, and along with a couple other telescopes, is very clever. They're using these clocks as probes of the local char uh, characteristics of space and time. So Einstein's theory of relativity says that these, you know, think of space and time as like a fabric. That fabric can have ripples in it, and they're called gravity waves. Recently detected for the first time uh, by these laser interferometers underground um, in the US and now in Italy. But um, what the passage of a gravity wave will, will, will distort the space and time around it. And one of the predictions is, is that if a gravity wave passes the Earth, a very kind of long gravity wave, the, the clocks in this direction will be slightly faster and the clocks in the, the opposite direction will be slightly slower or the orthogonal direction. So by looking at these pulsars, which are super precise clocks, you can say, huh, all the pulsars over here are a little bit faster this week and all the pulsars in the per perpendicular direction are a little bit slower this week. Huh, that must be due to the passage of a gravity wave. Now, it hasn't been seen yet. It's a very difficult measurement. But what uh, one of the, um, the nanograv uh, consortium is doing with Green Bank is making these, these measurements all the time in hopes of catching a passing gravity wave. And uh, you know, now that we know that gravity waves exist, I think the odds are pretty good that they're going to detect one. I feel like for this job, you need a lot of patience. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you do. You know, things don't change all that fast uh, in, in space. but. Uh, you know, occasionally you do see these um, these time variable events, and that's that's another exciting avenue that uh, Green Bank can do. When people look up into the night sky, uh, I'm sure we look at it, you know, everybody looks at it a little bit differently. I'm sure you, when you look up, you think of sort of this scientific perspective, you're thinking of all the things that you're seeing uh, beyond the naked eye with the Green Bank uh, Observatory with that mm -hmm. telescope. Um, but through the research that you guys are doing, what is it that you hope people um, are able to take away now when they look up into the night sky. Yeah, look at the the night sky holds the key to our 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 story, the story of humans, our origins. You know, you we can detect the the glow, the afterglow from the creation of the universe, the Big Bang. We see the mi cosmic microwave background, which is radio signals coming from all directions in space. We can see these baby stars forming. We can see them dying. It's a very dynamic um, um, place and uh, lots of dynamic processes. And we are a part of that process. So instead of thinking of ourselves as kind of divorced from it all, we're part of the cosmos. We're part of this story. And I feel that you know, a deep connection between what we see in space and, and how we came to be here on Earth. Does that make you less stressed out when you get, you know, stuck in a traffic jam or something like that? When you're like, well, it's all much bigger than this. <laughs> I, I wish I could say that, but I, I, I get pretty stressed out um, myself. But but I do love my job and it's it is uh, it is a it's a fascinating job and I can't get I can't believe they pay me to do it. 
That's awesome. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that there's outreach opportunities too, opportunities for you guys to oh, yeah. show the public and show the community what you're doing. What is it that you would like people to know about how they can interact with the observatory? Absolutely. So the observatory has a visitor center. So come on and visit us. It's a, you'll see it. Um, it's a nice, um, there's a little museum there. There's a little gift shop and you can get, take tours and go see these magnificent telescopes. Um, check out our website too for stories and um, the latest scientific results. It is, it's always, there's always something happening at Green Bank and we're looking forward to the, to the new capabilities. One exciting thing that's about to happen, I think, um, Green Bank has just been awarded some uh, funding from the National Science Foundation to develop a radar system. So one of the things that we're hoping to do is use the telescope as a big radar to study nearby objects like the moon or asteroids or planets or moons of planets to try to understand their surfaces. We can map their surface with amazing uh, precision with, uh, with a radar system. And I think that's going to be a big, um, a big part of our astronomy studies in the future. I know we kind of talked a little bit about specifically the, the, the elements that are in space are also in us. Um, but yeah. one last takeaway, I mean, what would you want people to know? What would you want their biggest takeaway to be about how what you guys are doing um, at yeah. the observatory and what you are observing in space relates back to yeah. us? Look, we're in the discovery business and the taxpayer is paying us to do exploration. And some, this exploration is, is fascinating, it's unending, um, there's always new surprises, and it's, it's really great when we get something wrong because that means that there's more to discover. So we're, we will do our best to make those interesting discoveries, those fascinating discoveries, so that um, the next time we do something really interesting, we'll be back on the television and we'll be talking to you about it. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.